Good morning. If you would be turning in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17, 1 Samuel chapter 17, we will not spend all of our time there, but we will begin there in just a moment. As, as has already been said, we're grateful that you are here and thankful for the chance to worship together, especially uh, inside where it's dry and warm. Um, I, I know that you all know that uh, I firmly believe that the preacher is no one special, that preachers are just men who uh, take the vocation of sharing the Word of God, but we are uh, human like everyone else, and I don't know that I feel that any more than on a Sunday morning when I wake up and it's rainy outside and I just want to crawl back in my warm bed. So uh, I understand that feeling, and it is certainly one of those mornings, uh, but I also know, as many of you do as well, that there is no greater feeling often than coming together with God's people to sing together and to worship and to enjoy some time of fellowship. And as I often try to do one more time to encourage you uh, to be a part of any and all of our services the rest of the day, our lunch or our afternoon service, uh, we look forward to being together. We appreciate Keith and uh, his time and, and preparation in helping guide us in our thoughts around the Lord's table and Gary and his uh, beautiful prayers he always does. I might be a little partial to the song leader for the morning. Uh, we appreciate all of our song leaders and the job that they do, but uh, something special about getting to enjoy uh, Clayton leading us this morning. We appreciate uh, his, his ability and talents to do that, and we're thankful to you uh, for singing out. I don't usually come to the stage, of course, or come up on the stage during the service, um, I, but I do enjoy standing down front often and hearing uh, the singing from behind me, and, and I'm often tempted to maybe step up here a little bit and to be able to appreciate and enjoy the singing that we do together. You're probably not super familiar with what takes place in First and Second Samuel. Now, I'm not saying that to, to take a shot at any of you or your Bible study or to say that you're not good Bible students. But sometimes when we think about the book of Matthew, we know, of course, maybe the chapter where Jesus is, is crucified. Or we think about the book of Acts. We know what takes place in Acts chapter 2 and often in the New Testament. But sometimes we go back to the Old Testament, and it's hard to remember everything, right? We, we've just spent a year, or at least about 12 Sundays together, going through what we often uh, study in Sunday school and reminding ourselves that we struggle very often to remember all that happens among those thousands of years in the Old Testament. So I'm not trying to take a shot at anyone, but, but probably it's true that we struggle sometimes. If you said, tell me something from First or Second Samuel, we, we might struggle to place some of the stories that we do know well, some of the events that happen that we've heard since we were children, but we might struggle to remember exactly where they are in the Old Testament. However, if I asked you to turn to an occasion of faith, most would probably think of the statements that are made in 1 Samuel chapter 17. Do you remember in verse number 37, particular, particularly part B, the Lord will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine? Or verse number 45, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. Or verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand. You see, if we think about the book of 1 Samuel, we often will think of what takes place here in chapter 17. From the mouth of David, in quite possibly what is the most famous fight in all of history, as David takes down the giant Goliath. But that's not what we're talking about this morning. And before we even get to the scripture that we're going to look at, we actually see that we might be able to say that the book of 1 Samuel is a book about faith. 
when we think about the way that God has interacted over time, in the Old Testament, he interacted with the children of Israel different than he does with Christians today. We, We do not live under the Old Covenant. We live under the New Covenant. We live today and are justified, as we'll talk about in just a moment, by faith. But yes, even in the Old Testament, we see faith be a part of a relationship with God. We see in the book of 1 Samuel, and I don't have all the, the chapters on the screen, but let's just go through it together. Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1, we meet Hannah. And Hannah, by faith, prays this prayer and wants a child, wants a baby, and God blesses her. We see faith involved there. Chapter 4, Israel shows a lack of faith when they're going to fight the Philistines. And they actually ends up, what ends up happening is that the Ark of the Covenant is going to be captured. They're, this is about faith, although it's a lack of faith in that moment. In chapter 7 and chapter 8, we see what we did talk about just a few months ago in our Sunday School Catch-Up series when we said that Samuel, by faith, believes that God is king and he should be worshipped and honored as such. However, the people, in a lack of faith, demand a human king. And even in chapter 11, Saul shows humility and faith in God and he leads the people to defeat the Ammonites in battle. You see, Saul is an interesting character and that's who we're going to kind of examine this morning in the chapters that we're going to look at. But Saul shows great promise. He is a man of faith and shows it on some occasion, yet he also struggles with faith. We could say this morning that while it's not a New Testament book, we can look back at 1 Samuel and learn about faith in God and the faith that we should have. And so this morning, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13, and we're going to try to cover chapters 13 and 14 this morning and some events or stories that maybe you're familiar with and maybe not, and if, that, if you're not, that's okay. But we're going to try to learn some more about faith. So let's begin, first of all, this morning, and let's think about Saul. As you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 13, Saul is reigning and has been reigning for two years And here we find ourselves in 1 Samuel 13 in yet another conflict with the Philistines. If you know your Old Testament history, this is a song as old as time, right, in some sense. The Philistines maybe haven't been around that long, but yet the children of Israel are always involved, it seems, in battles with the Philistines. And by the way, we've not even got to chapter 17 yet, right, as far as our timeline, where David is going to meet Goliath on the battlefield. Notice here the difference in the armies. The Philistines, it tells us, have in verse number 5, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen. And read at the end of verse number 5, they have people, which is as the sand on the seashore in multitude. I don't know when the last time you've been to the beach was. We can certainly envision it. If you've been recently or even in your lifetime, you know what it means to stand there on that beach, to feel the sand under your feet, and to look around you and think that you cannot even begin to count the pieces of sand. The Bible tells us here this is the army that the children of Israel are getting ready to face. This is not some small ragtag army. This is not someone who is not prepared. The Philistines have the army. And then notice, going back to verse number 2, that it says that Saul has with him about 
thousand men. Not against the 30,000 chariots, not against the 6,000 horsemen, not against the people who are innumerable, but he has 3,000 soldiers with him. What takes place in these first five or six verses is that Saul has called the people to battle, but they are afraid. They're afraid. Notice in verse number six that they even go into hiding. They go into the caves. They go into the thickets, into the rocks, into the holes, and into the pits to get away. And we notice as we begin verse number seven that some of them even cross the river, which I imagine is not an easy task, right? They're not walking the pedestrian bridge over the river to the other side. It takes effort, but they're willing to do it because they are afraid of this army that they are getting ready to face. And so let's pick up then in verse number eight, and let's read a few verses together through about verse 12. Then he, that's Saul, waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. And that takes place earlier in chapter 10. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened, verse 10, as soon as he had finished presenting presenting the burnt offering, that Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattered from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines gathered together at Mishmash, then I said, the Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore, I felt compelled and offered a burnt offering. You see, Saul commits an error here. He has been told what to do, and he does not listen. Now, what I find interesting here is when we talk about the Old Testament, and we're going to mention this again in a moment, but so often we see in the Old Testament human beings. You say, well, I know that, preacher. But you see human beings who act just like you and just like me. Have you ever been in that situation? Hopefully it was when you were a child. Our children often do it. Where you do something, and as soon as you do it, the person who you were trying to hide from walks right into the room, right, around the corner. The kid who maybe has been eyeing the cookie jar all day and not doing anything until they decide to reach up and steal a cookie out of the cookie jar. And it's right then that mama decides to walk into the kitchen, right? Saul knows he's not supposed to offer these sacrifices, and he has waited, but he finally decides he's not going to wait any longer. But as verse number 10 said, as soon as he had finished, Here comes Samuel. The other thing that comes to my mind, of course, in in a continuation of what we sometimes see, and going all the way back to the garden in the beginning in the book of Genesis, Samuel, who's not on par with God, don't get me wrong, he is a prophet, he is a man of God, but he is not God. But just as God shows himself in the garden to Adam and to Eve and says, essentially, what have you done and they begin to offer the, but, 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 this is, this is what I had done. Samuel walks up and says, what have you done? And Saul says, and, 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 here are all the reasons why I didn't obey. But what we see from the scripture here, particularly verse number 13 where we stopped, is that Samuel says to Saul, you have done foolishly. You see, we see here in our notes that Saul acts foolishly. Samuel tells him the truth. 
He's, he's acted foolishly. Why? Why did he act foolishly? Not just because of what Saul offers up. Well, you weren't here, and I didn't want to wait, and I couldn't this and that. No, you did not obey the commandment of the Lord. Saul was to wait. He was told to wait, but he gives in. He gives in to his fear. He gives in to the way that the people were acting around him. And this is shown by the scripture to be a terrible failure. He's panicking, right? He's worried. Samuel's not come. He's looking around him and everyone's hiding. And so he acts out of fear, or as we say here, he acts foolishly. The rest of the chapter shows us what is a truly awful situation. Notice beginning in about verse 19 that they, the children of Israel, have no blacksmiths. So there are no weapons to be found with anyone except for, as verse 22 tells us, but with Saul and with Jonathan, his son. Saul had acted foolishly in disobeying the command of God, and this cost him dearly. His situation is not better. He disobeyed God thinking it would make things better, but it didn't make it better. It's only worse. And it's made worse by his lack of faith as he's panicking and in fear and not showing faith. But then let's look secondly at Jonathan. You begin in chapter 14 and you see Saul's son, Jonathan. Now they're going to be interacting multiple times through these chapters, but we see a pretty stark contrast here between Saul's unlawful sacrifice in chapter 13 and then opening up to chapter 14 and let's discuss Jonathan. Let's read together again. Let's notice the first six verses. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. And the people who were with him were about 600 men. Notice at the end of verse 3, but the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Verse 4, between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistines' garrison, there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side, and the name of one was Bozes and the other was Sinna. The front of one faced northward toward Mishmash and the other southward towards Gibeah. Verse 6, then Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. What you see here is the title for our lesson, if you have a bulletin in front of you. By many or by few. When you pick up here, Jonathan and his armor bearer go and they're going to take some action. They're going to see as they have positioned themselves here. And by the way, if you're ever able to travel to this land, some have reported over the years that you can go and visit this area and see some of these very same rocks. But they're going to see how the Philistines respond. We're not taking the time to read all of it this morning, but continuing from verse 7 on down, Jonathan essentially says that they're going to sort of sneak up, and if they do, when they're seen, when they are seen, if the Philistines invite them up, 
then they'll know that God has delivered them into Jonathan's hand. But if they do not invite them up, then they will wait. Now, as they are invited up, and again, we're just kind of trying to summarize, beginning in about verse 10 down through most of the rest of the chapter. As they are invited up, they're going to then realize that God is going to give the Philistines into their hand. And what begins as a surprise killing of about 20 men, beginning in about verse 12 and down through verse 14, you see about the bodies of about 20 men laying around on this land. What begins as a surprise killing causes the Philistine army to wonder if they're not under attack by many more. They don't think that one or two here are able to take out this number of people. And so it turns into a dominated battle by the end, by the power of God, by Jonathan and his armor bearer, and then others get involved as they see that the Philistines are falling under attack and are being killed. And in contrast to the people and their actions and Saul and his actions and their fear and their faithlessness, Jonathan is shown as being a man of action. He's not concerned about the numbers. He's not cowering in fear as Saul has done, worried about the number of chariots or the number of horses. Instead, we might say that Jonathan acts in faith. Saul acts foolishly. Jonathan acts in faith. Read verse 6 again. Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. That's the Philistines. They're not children of Israel. They're not circumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. Notice the bravado, the strength. I'm not talking about in a proud kind of sinful way. Not false bravado or trust in himself but it is the earliest cry that the young man David will echo just a few pages later in your Bible when he says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he's going to defy the armies of the living God? And while that's what we remember when it comes to David, Jonathan's saying the same thing. They're nothing because they do not have God. What can we do? And God can save by many by the largest army that he could assemble, or by just a few. And it's interesting to me to compare these occasions, right? When you say few, we might say two or few, right? Jonathan and his armor bearer. But we're going to get even fewer in just a moment when David is going to go up against Goliath. But we see here that when Jonathan acts in faith, read and turn over to verse number 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day. Because of the faith of Jonathan, because of the way that he acts, because of his belief that with God on my side, I can do anything. Israel is winning the battle because God was with Jonathan, who had the faith to trust in the Lord to give them the victory. Now, real quick, because we're here, look at the rest of chapter 14, beginning in verse 24 and going through verse 46. Let me try to summarize quickly. This does not have a, a whole lot to do exactly with our discussion on faith, but it is very interesting to see the dichotomy continue to grow apart. Saul makes an oath that anyone who eats food before the end of the day 
and before he avenges himself on his enemies will be accursed. That's in verse 24. In a very, it is a very selfish vow, and it caused Israel to be worn out in distress because they can't eat. He's made this vow. They're not eating while they're fighting in battle. Now, Jonathan doesn't hear this oath. As he had gone around to the other side of the Philistines to start the attack. So Jonathan, looking down about verse 29 or so, Jonathan eats, sees honey, and he eats it. And this renews his strength. So one of the soldiers tells Jonathan that Saul put them under this oath not to eat. And that is why everyone is faint. So listen to what Jonathan says there in verse 29. My father has troubled the land. This is not what the king of Israel was to do. He was supposed to be the rescuer of the people, not the troubler of the people. Jonathan continues in verse 30 by saying that the victory would have been greater if it had not been for Saul's interference. And further than that, in verse 33, Saul had caused the people to sin by his oath because they are eating spoil of animals with the blood still in it. And we don't have time to examine all the verses that go along with that. But they did it because they were faint, that they were weak because of Saul's vow. Or as your Bible may say in a heading, and they often do, Saul's rash vow. The failure of Saul is further depicted in beginning in verse number 36. Saul says, we need to go finish off the Philistines. And the people tell Saul, well, that sounds good. Let it be as, as you say. <clears throat> but in verse 37, the priest stands up and says, wait a minute. Wait a minute, we need to talk to the Lord. We need to ask the Lord first. So Saul, in verse 37, inquires of God, but as is sometimes the theme with Saul, God will not respond. So Saul realizes, perceives this to mean that there must be sin in the camp. And so what they do is they cast lots. And you know who the lot falls upon? Well, it falls upon Jonathan, right? Jonathan confesses that he ate even though he did not know his father's oath. So in verse 45 or thereabouts, they are ready, or excuse me, Saul is ready to put Jonathan to death. But the people step up and in verse 45 they say, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel far from it? In what is sometimes the case where the leader is mistaken and misleading and needs to be corrected, the people understand that God gave the victory through Jonathan. So how can Saul's words be right? So the people ransomed Jonathan in verse 45, and he did not die. You can see the difference here, can't you? Between these two men, between their actions, between their faith that is showing and their lack of faith, it's a pretty stark contrast when we think about Saul and Jonathan. Two quick lessons here, and then this lesson will be yours. Number one, self-justification is wrong. Saul, back in chapter 13, thought that he was fully justified. Again, when you read it, you hear him say, When I saw that the people were scattered, that you did not come from the days appointed, that the Philistines gathered together, all of these things are excuses that he, are, that he is lining up. Have you ever done this in your life? Have you ever heard someone that would do this? We often consider the circumstances, not the truth of the matter. 
not the word of God. A phrase that we sometimes toss out is that the end justifies the means, right? Whatever way I've got to get there, if I can get to the end, that's all that matters. But what does the Bible say about what man thinks versus what God thinks? Psalm 14 and verse 1, you know what the fool says? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. As far as we can get a part in difference, that is how much higher my thoughts are than your thoughts. You are created. You are man. You are not God. Or Luke chapter 12, verses 15 through 21. We get a real life example, don't we? Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 15, a man's life does not consist of the things in which he possesses. And how does it even explain further? It's told by a parable. And what does that man do? Well, he has barns. But what does he say? Eh, they're not big enough. I need bigger. I need better. I'm going to tear down what I have, and I'm going to build for myself more things. And that night, his soul was required by God. Or even Romans chapter 1 and verse 22. That some people profess themselves to be wise, but they become fools. You see, our thoughts compared to God's thoughts are different. We try to get into the realm of self-justification. Here's what I am doing. Here are the circumstances I am in. And here's what I think needs to be done. Not considering what God has said. If I'm being honest with you this morning, and I'm in Saul's position and Samuel's not come yet, I'm probably panicking a little bit too. I'm probably worried a little bit about what's going to come next and what's going to happen. But Samuel's words to Saul was, you did not obey. It doesn't matter what we think. It matters what God has said. It does not matter what we think. It matters that we obey God. It matters what he thinks. We cannot justify ourselves before him now you may be thinking just as a real quick side note the new testament says that christians are to be justified right romans chapter 5 and verse chapter 5 verse 1 therefore having been justified by faith we have peace with god through jesus christ yes romans chapter 3 verses 23 through 25 all have sinned and come short of the glory of god being justified freely but if you notice, being justified freely by ourselves, being justified freely by what we can do, by the number of good deeds that we can do, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Christians are to be justified by faith, but not comfortable in self-justification. It's wrong when we think that we can justify what we have done. We must be obedient as Saul was not on this particular occasion. And number two, simply put, we must walk by faith. You know the passage well, even if you can't quote it or the verse reference right off the top of your head. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We go further into the New Testament and we find Hebrews chapter 11. And it is full of people who have walked by faith. How encouraging it is 
when we think about the Old Testament. Some of you may have been saying this morning, well, why, why are we studying Saul and Jonathan? Why are we going back to the Old Testament? Paul tells us in Romans chapter 15 and verse 4 when he says that whatsoever things were written aforetime, those things that were of old, those events and things that we can read about from the Old Testament, they're written for our learning. Just as you have to go to school and you have to open a history book and your teacher and your parents and generations hope that we learn something from history to see that we do not follow in those same terrible steps that many others have made. Whatsoever things are written aforetime are written for our learning that we can have hope. That we can have hope. A hope of a home in heaven. Hope that we can be found faithful we can look at those in Hebrews chapter 11 and at the Old Testament, those like Saul and Jonathan and others, and see what they did and know how we need to live. What makes the difference in the faith of Saul and Jonathan? Well, the account, the events, as it's recorded for us, make clear the differences. Saul is operating by what he sees. Don't forget here, he is essentially looking around him and he's worried about his backup, his army hiding. He's worried about the chariots that he sees. Saul is concerned about what his eyes are seeing and he's not asking God. Faith falters when it makes decisions by sight. Faith falters when it fails to ask God for his guidance and his help. Saul does not look for the commandment or the command of the Lord. Saul does not ask what the Lord wills. And a priest has to remind him, hold on, let's see what God has to say about this. But then Saul does not even wait for the answer. He reacts. Jonathan is completely different. Jonathan does not operate by what he sees. And that is truly seen when he takes his armor bearer, Right? He doesn't say, well, let me get 10 or 100 or 300 lined up. He takes his armor bearer, and they go up against the Philistines. Why does he think he can do this? Well, as he says in verse number 6, and by the way, this might be a good time to also mention God's providence. He says, it may be that the Lord will work for us. How many times in Scripture do we see that phrase? I cannot know for certain what's going to happen, but it may be that God will work for us. And it can be that whether it be by many or by few, that God has the saving power. If we're going to follow God, we must do so with faith. Amongst all of those great examples of the heroes of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, is Hebrews 11 and verse 6, without faith, it is impossible impossible to please him we must remember the words of jonathan by few or by many the lord can save in just a moment one of our elders is going to be coming to the front as is our custom here when we conclude our lessons together there's usually two groups of people that we are trying to encourage one of those is if you're here this morning and you're lost you've never become a christian you've never had your sins washed away by the blood of jesus we're thankful for this plan of salvation as we usually put on the screen. If you're here this morning and this is unfamiliar to you and you'd like to study it more, we would study with you today or as soon as possible because this is what the Bible tells us a person needs to do to be saved, to have their sins washed away by the blood of Christ. As we see here, that culminates in being baptized because that is where we come in contact with the blood for the remission of our sins 
and then the Lord can add us to his church. You can then begin to live faithful. If you're here this morning and you're lost, we encourage you to become a child of God. But the second group is not those who are lost, those who have been saved from their sins, but they might be categorized as unfaithful. If you're here this morning and there's sin in your life that has separated you from God, we sing to encourage you as well. You see, God's word doesn't say that we have to be baptized time and time again. There's what we sometimes call God's second law of pardon. What that means is you don't have to be baptized every time you mess up, but certainly when you sin in a public way, you can come before God's people as we'll stand and sing in just a moment and invite you to come to the front row and you can confess your sins. In doing so, God hears those. He is just and, and faithful to forgive as you confess and repent of those sins. The question I have for you this morning is, did you mean what you were singing? See, we sang number 400 on purpose before our sermon, right? Did you mean what you were singing? I'm living by faith, trusting, confiding in his great love. I'm living by faith and feel no alarm. Did you mean that? Or can you sing with confidence and mean it what we're about to sing? Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey as we stand together and as we sing.